Difference makers all face the same question. How can we initiate, drive and sustain change in any of its forms, whether it be social change, behaviour change, policy change or, at its most challenging, system change? Massive Small Stories presents lessons from all over the world, amplifying how amazing people have done amazing things throughout their careers. It celebrates those who have overcome all odds by pursuing their purpose in life and have influenced change for all of us. These are our massive small agents of change. Welcome to Massive Small Stories. I'm Kelvin Campbell. I'm an urbanist and a writer, and I'm here with my co-host, Liam Hello. Black, also a writer and a social entrepreneur. That's it. That's it. We've seen a lot of each other over the last few days recording these, haven't we? Far too much. Far, far too, too much. much. People yeah. are starting to talk. They are. Are you getting tired of me sitting here? I think so. As, I think so. Give, it a, give a, it a break for a bit, I think. Yeah, it's Christmas. You give Christmas. And we'll give Christmas a break. Pick it up in the new year, <laughs> see if it still works. Yeah, all right. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we are going to be inspired today. Obviously not from you, but from uh, our guest, who's uh, Ruth Ibeg Buna, who's um, a serial founder, uh, a professional northerner, a, the scourge of the poor train system in the north of England. Please follow her on Twitter to see what I'm uh, talking about. And an incredibly resilient, inspirational entrepreneur uh, who doesn't wait to be told to change things, just gets on and does it. Founder of multiple organizations, including one of her latest ventures, Rekindle, which is an attempt to uh, rethink how education is done with uh, young people. Ruth, you are so welcome uh, to join us on the podcast today. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me, for inviting me on. So, so how would you, how would you um, uh, introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Ruth and I... Hello, I'm Ruth and I keep starting up different organisations. I, I, I can't help myself. Yeah. I need some help. You do need some help. So we have a therapist that we could refer on to you um, uh, afterwards. So um, tell us about Rekindle uh, to get us started on the work that you're doing. And as I understand it, you're trying to um, rethink what education looks like for young people, particularly young working class people. So you're taking on an enormous legacy infrastructure around education in this country. Are you mad? Yeah, clearly. Um, I, I I was a teacher. Um, the job that I loved the most, the deepest love I've ever had is I was a teacher. And whenever anyone asks me what I do, I say I'm a teacher, even though you know I'm CEO or whatever else. But I lasted seven years in a system, um, despite the fact that I loved teaching, despite the fact that young people loved being in my classroom. And the system just completely ground me down and broke me and kind of spat me out the other side. And what I've witnessed over the kind of 15 years since then is just that happening so much to young people and to teachers alike um, and a system that's been set up to not help especially working class young people to thrive not expecting them to thrive not expecting to saw thrives too too easy a word so we're looking at a system that can be molded more to fit modern times and to fit the needs of young people that are finding their education dull lacking in innovation, lacking inspiration. Like, how do we make something work for them? So they sit in the classroom feeling excited, excited about what they're going to do next. Okay. And, um, you know, we, you, we, we call this podcast Massive Small. That's a massive ambition that you have. Tell us about how you're starting to do that. How do you go about reinventing a, 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 an education system in the way that you want? 
the way to start and and who knows i mean you could come back to me in 10 years and i've not changed a thing right but the way that we started was by talking to young people who were in the education system so we started off with eight young people aged 16 to 24 who'd all recently exited ed- education and all of them even though they'd done okay academically all of them felt quite bruised by the process so it was kind of two ex-teachers eight young people and we were like how would we design the system if we could and it was just before lockdown, so we were very bored for several months to come. And we, we just we were playing around with what was... A key ingredient of social change. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right. Nowhere to go, lots of Zoom calls. But we looked at, OK, what, what about if an education system cared, first of all? Before anything else, we just cared. And we, we loved the kids in our care. And we made sure that teachers' mental health was all right. And if it wasn't, we did something about it. And... What about if the curriculum spoke to like that kind of entrepreneurial spirit and 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 we had teachers that looked and felt like like we were. Um, so we just played around with it. And then we were like, OK, let's let's try and do this and try and have a school that can exist as a supplementary school. But to use it as a vehicle for pushing for change, because we really believe that if we encourage young people to be critical thinkers and we instead of telling them what to think. listen what they thought and challenge them on that, we might get to somewhere more interesting in this country. So critical thinking is underpinning everything we do. And why, just to go back right to the beginning of it, why two teachers and eight children? Why not 20 children and five teachers? What was the moment that you thought, okay, I'm going to start here and this is where I'm going to start? It was eight young people that at various points in my career I'd had dealings with either through, they'd been through projects or I'd met them and I'd been impressed by them or young people I'd mentored, so they're all young people that, although they didn't know each other, at different points I'd, I'd known them all. Um, and I thought that would help them in terms of a point of comfort. But as I started speaking to each other, we had young people from Hackney there, young people from Manchester there. There were so many similarities that kept cross-cutting. It was like, let's do something with this, you know? And, and also, they were the young people that no one would expect to come up with answers. So yeah. three of them were care-experienced. Like... They, they've got strong views on how their educational experience didn't work. Right. I mean, it's quite, it's, it's fascinating. I, I wrote a little short story about the enlightened educator, about um, uh, there was a project that um, a friend of mine was working on called Scale Free Schools, where he was trying to move away from the idea of a bright, shiny building as a solution to educational problems. And uh, he saw education as a much more distributed system in the community. So how do you take advantage, particularly when we have so many older people out there who've got lots of wisdom? How do we attract them into becoming teachers as well? How, how, how do we create a condition where everyone in the community is a teacher? And that's quite an interesting challenge in, in some ways. So two things um, we wrote about was, we wrote about a school up in, in Glasgow, uh, in Easter House, which is a pretty dire social housing area, probably matched by Moss Side to some degree. Um, as it used to be, Moss Side as it used to be. And um, one of the things that came out of it was uh, they had no music school, had no music classes. They couldn't recruit a music teacher. But they found there was this little old lady who played music hall piano. uh, And she had the only Steinway uh, piano in town. And how could we bring her into the system? So instead of, say, let's create a music school, kids were sent sent to her and her house became part of the school. And that's an interesting phenomenon. There's so many parallels between so many other disciplines that exist in a community, and we don't seem to take advantage of it. You know, I'm smiling as you're talking because our mantra, you know, it's, it's often said this, 
the African mantra of it takes a village to raise a child, but that that is that underpins everything that we do. And the thing that I found kind of most disturbing when I was a teacher was that the the, the school became the community, then it closed its doors on the community. That's it. And we invite them in for parents' evenings, but like, we don't use, utilize the talents of those people who are outside the doors. And Rekindle is the absolute opposite of that. So we've got a building in the community, and we are constantly saying, "What can you do? Can you cook? Come and cook for us." Can you, um, we had a mechanic in the other week, you know, you can fix cars, come and teach our young people how to fix cars. So we're constantly trying to get as many people from outside our gates into our gates to work and interact with our young people. And also to for them to see that like these young people are precious local, you know, precious local creatures, but all of us have got to look after them. It's not just down to their mum and dads, right? We've, we've all got to keep an eye. When I, you know, when I was growing up, my family in Nigerian and before that we've got Irish people in our family. I didn't have a hope of not having aunties and uncles everywhere. And everyone felt they had a right to play a part in my upbringing. And we're trying to kind of instill a bit of that. So people do give a damn about a kid that's not their teenager who might be in trouble. Um, so, yeah, that whole idea of it takes a, a village is key to everything. I mean, you picked that point, the point in your in the, in the talk I saw of yours recently about the question of respect. How do you build relationships between young and old? I mean, they're such critical things to to do. Um, I told Liam a story of a, I was working in a housing estate in in North London, and there was this old colonel character with a flat cap who who used to come up to our, our, our consultation office and moan all the time about these kids. You know, these kids. You know what they're like. They've got no respect. And eventually said to him, um, "What's your problem?" You know, I mean, you come in every day and you moan about these kids. What's your problem? I don't know what we can do. So he said, don't you know these kids, um, these kids don't know that I used to teach umpires how to, how to umpire cricket. And they're all obsessed with, they're all Bangladeshi kids. They're all obsessed with cricket. Don't they know that I can help them? So I phoned up the local councillor and I said, look, do me a favour, just pop in quickly, just meet this guy and introduce him to the kids. And all of a sudden that relationship between the kids and this old guy changed completely. There was respect. Oh, we respect this guy. He's a teacher of cricket. And, you know, those are the sort of the vital links that we don't make when we, we treat schools as something where we scan the kids in in the morning, you scan them out in the afternoon. You know, that's almost like a, your point about you only invited in for parents', parents evening, um, parent teachers' evening. How do we change that dynamic in education when there's all these things called health and safety and all these other sorts of threats that we have um, around the perception of when external people become involved with kids, it's a big problem. This is the thing we're terrified now. You know, like I, I'm a, a, a teacher. I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a very safe individual. And for me to get into a school is almost impossible. Like there are so many safeguarding things that I need to fill in to get into a school to run an assembly. And so the ordinary person in the community who just wants to go and spend some time or volunteer or read with a young person, that's gone. That, 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 that has been shut oh. down because fear overrides everything else and I think that's a real sadness in some ways I mean one of the things that we do for example and this came from a young person a 12 year old was talking about the fact that his nan doesn't go out anymore um to see her friends many of her friends have died um and just feels very lonely and, and kind of stuck in the house and one of the things that our young people came up with was the idea that on Sundays we're going to have something called winter warmers where older people come in for a meal the younger people serve the food and then there's 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 a we've had a DJ there 
sometimes they dance together and the old people can move right um yeah. and it, but it's we just can. that space like sometimes the young people are playing dominoes with the older people but we're having a meal together that's a key element of everything that we do we can sit and have food together and i think it's about taking away them from the formalities and like you said with the cricket finding just finding those moments where actually the young people have got something of interest to say to the young people young people are generally pretty respectful of old people they yeah. are they're respectful of their grandparents and and once you introduce them to a room full of older people you see their behaviors change and then kind of shift up because they know how they've got to be right but we just don't engineer enough time for that kind of thing to happen i don't think and how is this attempt at rethinking education building up social capital in getting the village involved in the education of these young people how is that being responded to by the more formal education authorities or do you just leave them alone they ignore us um, um and, and this is the truth of it. and because i think for a long time liam i've been trying to work alongside systems or work within systems and then i just got to a point where i was just like no, no change is happening um I'm getting frustrated. Nothing's really happening here. And I think what we're trying to rekindle is prove the model outside the system to the point it's like irrefutable. And then we're like, okay, now, now we'll do a mainstream school using our same principles. You know, we talk about kind of support, nurture, achievement and protection being the core things. Our lessons start with Tai Chi. That's how we start every day, Tai Chi and some meditation, because actually young people's mental health is all over the place at the moment. But in mainstream schools, they haven't got the time to actually, they've got that fact, they know that's the case, but they haven't got the time to start with Tai Chi. We're doing that. And what we want to show is maybe in about five, six years, once we've got the evidence, that maybe these are things that you can introduce into the mainstream. But we've got to, we've got to work out there for now. I can't be thinking about what mainstream or even policymakers are thinking of us. We're just proving it in the communities. This is a constant theme, isn't it, that you and I talk about, and we've talked about with yeah. our other guests, yeah. this tension between uh, from policymakers, investors will always say, you may well have heard it when you've been looking for funding, Ruth, how is this going to scale? How, and often you go, well, I don't know, um, but we won't know anything unless we take these next few steps. Yeah. So that, that tension between wanting to change the system and actually knowing the system isn't going to change unless you actually have a compelling um, proposition, which you've worked through over time, yeah. Um, rather than collaborating and making it less than you want at the beginning by involving you know, the, your local authority. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and I think that's the point. Like we, we've, we're quite quietly educational and militant on this one. We're like, no, we are doing this in the way that we want to do this. Um, and what's giving me room to manoeuvre in some ways is that we are working on a, a principle that working class kids know what they need in their communities, right? And because no one's getting that right, I'm not saying we're getting it right either, but because no one's getting that right and no one's putting the time and care and passion into ensuring that working class kids can speak for themselves, we're being given a space to kind of almost experiment because I think people are kind of peering in going, okay, this is this is quite interesting. What, what do kids from the care system want from their education system? Because we've not actually asked them before. What do um, young people who've had refugee backgrounds want from a better British education system? So because we're doing that piece of work, um, I think whatever we come out with, it's going to be of interest because these are groups that are not leading elsewhere. I mean, and and since we started the Manchester School, we're, we're at a point now where we're going to be working in Scotland, we're working in Bradford, we're about to open a school in London. So there clearly is an appetite for people to to see if the system can be changed in some way. 
or at least pushed pushed up we were talking to seth kaplan um, last uh, week who's based um uh, in washington and he he has a new book out called right here called fragile neighborhoods repairing american society one zip code at a time and he's he's got a great turn of phrase hasn't he, he? Has, he yeah. talked about scaling sideways so that so, so often a really great initiative will be taken up by a much bigger organization mm. and then like the Borg in Star Trek will take it on assimilate yeah, and kill it, it yeah. and kill it and kill it yeah whereas it sounds like your scaling sideways is already beginning to happen organically and so for example we're going to start working in Scotland from January and the first thing we're doing is looking for the area with the eight young people eight Scottish kids who are going to be you know replicating the group in Manchester but we'll have completely different priorities so if we're working in Dundee, what are eight young people in Dundee going to say that they want from their education system? I don't know. I have absolutely no idea. But whatever they come up with is going to form the bedrock of what we do next. And that, So the Manchester young people came up with the curriculum. They did the governance. They did the budgets. Like everything was done by the young people. We employed them to work on the school. The same will be done in Scotland, in London, in Bradford. And, and these schools will have completely different flavours. There'll be the same DNA running through them, but... I doubt that the the Bradford school is going to look like the Dundee school, you know. So that and that's the the principle. And then the the kind of final piece is the elders. So we have the young people who are the pioneers. And once they've put everything together that they want with their school, we've raised the funding. Then we invite eight elders, and they decide who might be useful elders for them. And it tends to be kind of you know probably they invite you, Liam. You know, like people who've, who've done no, work, been around. Wise, Kevin. Not him, please. <laughs> Been, yeah. been around the track, know a thing or two. They invite them in, and they, and what I love is the elders can't ever, the elders can't ever um, override, uh, take away what the people have said. They can't ever say no, we're not doing that. What they can do is just advise and challenge and champion and mentor. That's it. The final decision comes to the young people themselves. That's I think it's quite an interesting thing that you ch you you taking small numbers. Yeah, you got to. Think I think about you asked the question. You got to ask the question. Why not twenty? Actually, if you can take eight and eight, or six, I, I always talk about the power of sixes, but equally the power of eights. So it's small, handleable enough, handleable enough numbers that yes. you can then choose and replicate in another place and another. That's your that's your horizontal scaling at work. And then, as you said, once you start building up that power of that network and that power of that collective understanding, and also the power of sharing between these different networks, you can then start elevating it. So to build that solid base as big as possible. Um, the challenge you've got, and I'm sure that I find in almost everything that I've been involved with, is eventually the top-down systems start killing this. The, you know, eventually the rules come in. Oh, you can't do that, or we can't get this. We can't give this to you. You're not allowed to do this without doing that, and that's going to be your challenge. And I think, you know, you've really got to stick quite hard to your principles of being. I like the principle of militant. I talk about the idea of guerrilla urbanism. You almost have to be. You have to think yourself as I'm a person who's out there with a slightly sort of revolutionary sort of or radical sort of feel to what I'm doing and push as hard as you can. So that's a, that's a very interesting challenge you, you've got there. And I, I just love the, I love the model. I love the way that how you're taking it and how, you, how you're looking to then scale it up. And how do you... I mean, the thing about the, the, the kind of the more radical undercover, absolutely. I mean, our work, our, our logo is based upon um, an artwork by Emery Douglas and he was the Minister for Culture for the Black Panthers, right? So, you know... Just was it not the yeah fist, is it? <laughs> yeah the fist yeah the, the, the young people decided they want their fist holding a book but the artwork that surrounds that that's taken from Emory Douglas and 
And this whole whole kind of fierce revolutionary spirit, that's how they feel about education. That they feel very, very like the young people are so articulate about kind of what the, the educational diet that they feel they've been fed and what was lacking in it. And also the care that so many of them have for their teachers when they talk about their teachers and seeing adults who were at breaking point and they, they can see it, they're aware of it. And they talk about the tension in classrooms and how if they felt that teachers weren't so exhausted all the time, it would actually be a better educational experience for everyone. Like, no one presumes that young people notice that kind of thing, but they do. Um, so, you know, we, the, the care and health, help that we have we are fierce about protecting that their school uniforms just say critical thinker that's it you've seen the jumpers liam they just say critical thinker critical and that's thinker, it yeah. and that's all we, that's all we ask of all the young people it's like don't just accept you know if something doesn't make sense to you interrogate it question it roll it around say no um and and my background is that for one year of my career i lived in a boarding school i was a, a house mom in a boarding school and just that difference going from that where it was absolutely expected that you would you would rigorously interrogate everything to go into a state school that, was a, that had brilliant kids in it, but yeah. they were just taught to kind of learn things and go home and pass your exams. And no one was expecting them to to challenge in the same way. And that's what I want that that fear spirit in Rekindle. Yeah. Wow. Who, who is the who is the TED Talk Ken? I always get his name. Is Ken Donaldson or Ken what's Robinson? Ken Robinson. Robinson yeah. how, how education systems kill killing creativity in children. And, uh, and adults. And, I, and, and adults, adults. yeah, absolutely. Well, the problem is that I always use a, I use a quote by Frederick Douglass, who was a, um, and you probably have heard this one before, it's easier to build strong children than it is to mend a broken man. Yeah. And I feel that all we've been doing, certainly in my life as an urbanist working in housing, is that all I've been doing is mending broken men. You know, and that, that, to me, if, what I like about this is, that, I like about that term is it's almost a, a it almost parallels this idea of, um, of, uh, you know, how do you how do you bring about how do you bring about dealing with the causes rather than the symptoms? And the problem a lot of the educational system has been about here's a problem, let's solve the symptoms around it rather than solving the underlying causes. So this idea of and, and particularly the challenges we have today about how easy information has got from the website. And of course, my son's been showing me how incredible information you get from AI nowadays. So the idea that the knowledge bit is easy to get. It's actually all those, it's the software bit of education that's that's missing. As you said, it's the respect systems, it's the trust systems, it's the mutual support systems, it's all those sorts of things that become incredibly important. And that school is the most important foundation for building that in the community. And to come back to Seth Kaplan's view about fragile neighborhoods, he actually said, the biggest challenge out there is not climate change, it's actually building the social fabric of our society. Because and I, I, the quote I mentioned the other day is that unless we get the social fabric right, fabric right, we'll eat the last panda. So the problem is we're focusing wow. on something which is incredibly powerful, but actually we really have to get our foundations and our roots, roots sorted out properly first. Can we go back to the sideways scaling, um, Ruth? So yeah, you're in your early stages, but you're already contemplating other cities in the, the UK. It, 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 is, there a, is there a point at which you say, like, okay, we know enough about this in order to be able to share it with other cities? Or is your approach, well, we're still learning ourselves, but the more people trying to learn together around the country, the better we will be. What's the... The second, I think we're, we're trying to find those people who feel like I do and thousands of us like me in other cities and almost 
it's that movement piece, isn't it? And and to ensure that we, we I think the, the first piece is the hope piece that it can be done. Cause I know so many educators who have gone, Oh my God, you've done it. Like you crazy lady. I didn't think it was possible. And because we've done it, they're like, well, maybe we can do it. I think, I think there's actually a tipping point with all this that if we can get enough young people understanding that that they can play a part, that they can create schools in their communities, that working class kids can hold this. And, and I'm very determined that working class children are going to lead this because I think very quickly, as soon as something becomes successful, it becomes more middle class and it becomes sanitised. And that's not what this was. There's a fierce spirit behind it. But I think there's also a real moment where educators are saying, this system is broken. We all know it's, we're whispering. We all know it's broken. British education is, it's not working. It's not working for the majority now, you know? And so therefore, when you get to that point where ordinary parents are just going, do you know what? My kid's coming home unhappy. Um, they, they, my, my teachers look unhappy. Let's try something else. And, and the top-down approach is not working the ideas that are coming out of whether it's government or shadow government or who it's not working there's nothing there's nothing there that's inspiring it doesn't feel inspiring and and if rekindle isn't the answer i'll be a bit sad but i just hope that someone else has got that answer but we're going to try our own little educational experiment and see whether in three or four years when we've got these schools going in different cities that we're better looking after young people who are not thriving at the moment we talk about um rekindle being about young people falling in love with education that's it. Just want them to fall in love with education. Doesn't mean they're going to get better GCSE results or anything like that. We just want the school not to be a place of trauma and it, to be a place where they feel safe and that they can grow. That's it. Talking of trauma, did you hear um, Ruth Perry, the uh, head teacher that took yeah, her own took life? Her own life and, yeah. Did you hear her sister, who's a formidable um, advocate and champion of her late sister, was on Woman's Hour last week on the BBC, laying into Ofsted? Yeah. And, that, and that was the kind of the, the most uh, acute form of this control mechanism, which yeah. makes people command and control. Really, yeah, command and control. Yeah. yeah. Can I um, ask you about you, Ruth, in all of this? So you, you, you have a reputation of being a kind of no nonsense, t take no prisoners, no bullshit social entrepreneur who gets things done. How do you keep yourself in check? So how do you not? take it over how do you allow these young people to lead on it especially when maybe they're saying things you think mm, actually that might not be the best way yeah and 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 i have to work hard on that because i think you know this is now my fourth organization so sometimes when things are suggested you're literally still reliving the scars of that in a previous organization but you don't want to be like have a, a dampener on things but i just see myself now as that kind of bossy slightly wiser slightly person who can lay things out and go look we've done this before we did this here da, 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 this is what happened you choose you decide and I, I just see my role much more now is finding those young people who've probably got the energy I had 20 years ago and holding the door open for them like kicking the door open and just sharing kind of my networks and my experience but mm. letting them do the work yeah so I'm probably a very different CEO now to the one that I was when I started my first organization Reclaim, where I was just in everything, you know, and, and was terrified to let go. Whereas now I get vaguely irritated if I'm called into the detail now, because I'm just like, I've got bigger things to dream about. Um, so, and, and in terms of keeping myself going, to be honest, I think, I think if I, I'm a very empathetic person, I find the world a very difficult place. 
And my way of coping with the world is to try and work hard on the little things that I can achieve change on, which almost allows me to put my head down, which is, you know, not the bravest thing I've ever said, but it does. It allows me to put my head down and go, have I done as much as I can this week with this small thing that I'm doing? Um, because otherwise I think I'm the kind of person that would be overwhelmed with everything else that's going on. So I, I do what I can where I can, and that kind of keeps me nourished, I think. I think that's very wise. I heard, um, I can't remember the uh, guy's name, but Wavelength, the leadership um, organisation I used to have, we had someone speaking uh, once, and he, I don't know if it, whether it was his um, way of articulating it or, or someone else had done it. You, you might know Kelvin. But he talked about the sort of four stages of life, that there's mm. learning, that's right, yeah. proving, enabling, and giving. And they don't, you know, we're always trying to learn, but, but, but you know, learning up to, up to a point. You, so you're, good, a point, you're good enough to, to go to the next level. Then yeah. you're going to proving, you know, for me, that was, can I prove that I can set these organizations up, be a CEO, make them work. But now in my dotage, and I'm significantly older than uh, uh, you, Ruth, but and me. no, are you? No, you're <laughs> way older than me. You look a lot older than me anyway. Um, in enabling, and you articulated it really, really well there, that sort of, I'm going to stand back and enable these young people to be themselves and be in, in charge of this, but acknowledging at the same time that there are areas I know more about and that I can open doors that they can't. And I've developed networks over time, which mm. they just don't have because of where they've grown up as well as their age. So I think you've articulated yeah. that really, really well. And, and you, know, you talked there about, um, you know, focusing on the stuff that you can control and thinking, you know, am I being a bit cowardly and not taking on the big stuff? I don't think you are. I think that if more and more people were smoking, focusing on the change that they can make, yeah. even if it was only with eight people, and a million people are helping eight people, we've got eight million people. Yeah, so I think what you're doing yeah. is, is very inspiring. Um, like that. I feel a bit like that about COP, which is going on at the moment. Can I get this off my chest? Yeah, I'll get it off your chest. Go on. 97,000 people have gone to, have flown to Dubai. Yeah. 97,000. To Dubai, the most sustainable place in the world, yeah. is it? Yeah. And, okay. you know, the, I see a lot of it on LinkedIn. It's kind of wringing of hands and, um, you know, bemoaning what's going on. And there's a lot to wring hands and bemoan about. But it, one, they could have done that here and gone to fancy restaurants in, in this country to bemoan. Yeah, yeah. So they'd have to fly um, to the Middle East. But I just wonder how many of us are or have certainly in our social entrepreneurial careers wasted too much of our energy on going for the big thing. Yeah. when we should have been really focusing on how do we make that smaller thing work as well as it can and then scale it sideways. And, and, and the frustrating thing about that that you've just said is I quite often find myself when I'm in the social entrepreneurial world yeah. and they'll look at what I've done with my career and, and it's almost like, oh, nice lady, good ideas, but, you know, hasn't reached scale. Because scale is seen as, you know, like how many thousands of people have you affected and this, that, and the rest of it. And and sometimes I, I think there's a kind of, I don't know, a kind of machismo about the, the numbers in, in, that we can kind of get to, rather than a real quiet thought in terms of the depth and, and the, the fact that this amount of change takes a long time. You know, the, Rekindle is a moment now, but we're not going to see the real impact of this work for a long time, these 12 and 13 year olds that we're working with now, these 12 and 13 year old critical thinkers, it's not until they're kind of 26, 27, 28 that we're starting to fully understand what the work really did for them. And, and when we start analyzing how fewer teachers are having 
kind of breakdowns. That that's a long piece of work, but it takes a lot of time. Um, and I think that's something that the the social impact world could really have a look at itself and just go: Are we putting enough respect on other types of change that are also needed, as well as the big kind of you know? Yeah. Also, um, social social change, social change is so difficult to measure. You know, yeah. you, if you've sown that seed in someone who happens to sort of rekindle that seed, kindle it, rekindle that seed um, yeah. in 10 okay. years' time, you've done what you set out to achieve. And I think yeah, the but, problem is that we, we've, we had Math Potts on recently. Yeah, um, we did. Yeah. And Math you, Potts. You must know Math, Ruth. Everyone knows Math. Everyone everyone knows. Math. So, so Math talking about um, how when he was talking to government about actually homeless people don't need houses, they need friends. And the guy's saying, sorry, how do you measure that? And of course, him being laughed at almost. Uh, not doing almost, being laughed at. Being, being laughed at. He was laughed at, wasn't he? So, so this thing about how you measure, how you measure the outcome of, of what it is you, you're setting out to achieve. I mean, you, all you're doing is throwing the pebble in the pond, don't you? And it's those rings of that pebble are going to break a little bit further downstream, a little bit further on. And, um, but unless it starts there, because top-down doesn't change, okay? Top-down by its very nature atrophies, okay? It doesn't change. And it's really these bottom-up things that start influencing how people start looking at problems differently. And you're absolutely right. All of our systems, I, I, my, my interest is in housing. And our housing systems are absolutely stuffed. You know, health service, you know, the problems that exist in these institutions at the moment are incredibly big. And they can really be changed by much more bottom-up action. Now, often I, I went into um, Stoke Mandeville Hospital recently and I sat in the waiting room for a good 15 hours and just wish that someone would come up and say, how are you? Here's a cup of tea. You know, and that could have been done by volunteers. It didn't need to be done by the health service. But you sat there you know, at, when you're feeling your most fragile and you just felt abused by the system. You know, really, I shouldn't be here. I'm not allowed. To, they don't want me to be here. They're sticking me on a plastic chair that I can't even rest my back up against. And it's, you know, it's, it's things like that. No one's thinking about in any way about the individual. They're just thinking about the system. And that's the problem. You know, I think you're starting by saying, let's look at the individual. And that's a complete different perspective. Because all we've done for years is we've all lumped people into the same categories. We've all said, this is the average person. We treat this average person the average way, and we develop the rules for that average person. Whereas we know we're not like that at all. And society is so much more complex than it was in the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s, when a lot of these models were, were established. Yeah, I, I, I really agree. Your, your thing about scale, I think um, you talked about um, the machismo. There's definitely that. But there's a, there's a huge fetishization of scale. Yeah. And I know that from the, you know, the impact investment world um, that I'm in. And I'd have to put my hands up and say, in probably in my... 30s, 40s, maybe into my 50s, I was a bit of a proponent of that. That unless you are big organisation, profitable, you know, all of that, then you're not really bringing about social change. And I'm a bit ashamed listening to this and some of the speeches that are going around in my mind, or I stormed in as the, uh, you know, the the Savior. award, yeah, the award-winning social entrepreneur who's proved this thing in Liverpool. And you know, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. So, um, uh, yeah. But moving from a command and control mode, which is what I suppose a teacher would have been taught to do, you know, um, to being an enabler is, is like Venus and Mars. You know, you really have to, it's, it's a complete change of psyche.
but it's absolutely imperative that we move towards i mean politicians today i i, I told liam i sat recently in a in a meeting in number 10 to do with housing and to realize that there wasn't one single idea amongst anyone at that table about how to solve the problem and all they had is what's the next tool what's the next fix we can put in place that we can command okay we can command something to do this and then we can control it and i was saying why don't you just let people solve the problems themselves you know let's there's there's a lot that people can do people are wise people are not stupid and also people don't go crazy you know some people go crazy we call them innovators but most people follow the instinct follow the herd and we are scared of that we're scared of the of releasing the wisdom of people to solve wicked problems and i suspect we're particularly scared of young working class people uh, absolutely yeah absolutely yeah yeah so how i think the thing about the um about the system not changing you know that's absolutely true and I, and I think sometimes the smallest changes so for example we have a lot of neurodiverse young people who have self-nominated to attend our school because they're not especially enjoying their time in in their their, their schools because they they they've got to be seen as the same as the other kids and and they're not and they, and they they struggle to to fit in there in the box, and they come yeah. to us and um can you hear me okay yes yes yeah we're fine oh sorry yeah and yeah and they come to us and it's just like this the smallest tweaks can make such a we had one boy for example loves drawing dinosaurs like literally he's a young person he's on spectrum loves drawing dinosaurs once he's drawn a couple of, of triceratops he'll listen but you gotta let him draw his triceratops right <laughs> and he spends so much of his time in remove or getting in trouble because he's not paying attention in pee because he's trying to draw his dinosaur you just think that's the system. Just let the boy draw a couple of dinosaurs and then he'll feel at ease and he'll join in the day. And so I think just having a system that just allows us to be honest about the fact that we are all different necessarily. And that's what makes kids glorious is that they're different. Yeah. And the idea that we then expect them to shoehorn into one very dull mode in the middle, to me, I just think that just diminishes everything about education. I love the quirks of young people the ridiculous quirks of young people it's life affirming it's amazing it is yeah. is is there a limit to the size of each rekindle community is there a point at which you you're you're involved in crowd control and you're not involved in this special nurturing of these amazing young people absolutely yeah i mean we have our place can take comfortably maybe 23 which to some funds is like oh, children a night you know and I'm like, yeah, we could take 40, but they're not getting the same quality. So it is quite small numbers. And that's why in some ways why the whole thing about scaling sideways, because we need quite a, little, a few rekindles. But I'm also an ambitious educator, right? Like within five years, I want to have a mainstream school using the same principles. So at the moment, we are a supplementary school that can only deal with small numbers. But in a few years, I would really like to try the same model we start with our tai chi we focus on mental health the, the key thing we do at rekindle for example is it's free hot meal home-cooked food phones off adults sit with young people we have a meal together really basic that's not happening in schools but and i understand why you know, teachers want to get a break from the kids but imagine phones off and you're just sitting all having a, a home-cooked decent tasted meal so we've got like Caribbean cooks, local people who cook really gorgeous food for us. And at first of all, just prizing everyone's phones out of their hands was a nightmare. Adults worse, to be honest. But now we sit together like, you know, how's the day? You know, how's your food? Like normal conversations, but actually interacting as human beings. 
it's changed it's changed the way that we are around each other why couldn't schools do something simple like that it's very simple why oh, indeed you mentioned funders there so tell us something about your experiences when you're going to find some money the sorts of conversations that you've had and who and who are the funders who get it it was really really and you know when i was talking before about me as an enabler i was needed at first to kind of be the the security for the money because we had young people writing the funding bids funders did not believe they were right they were writing the funding bids they were pitching to funders and what was happening there was a ceiling so they were good for about fifteen thousand. Because everyone's like, oh, look at these inspiring working class kids. This is seven grand. You've got, you run along and do something lovely. So they got loads of tiny amounts. Then when they started going, okay, we need 100,000 to get a building, et cetera, et cetera. It was like, don't be ridiculous. You're 21 years old. Da, da, da. And that's where I was quite useful to be, to go along with them and get that money. Bring in the um, old woman. So whereas some funders, to be fair to them, have been excited by the proposition. There's been some funders, you know, Paul Hamlin Foundation, as we Fairburn, who've been like, now that you're trying to you're trying to change a system here, this is exciting, and they have given them decent amounts of money. But the amount of funders who were just giving pennies and feeling really good, and then putting you know a picture on their website of of, of all our our young people um, immediately just made me. Funders uh, love pictures of happy black people. It makes them really happy black people on every on every website. Well, that's the only place we're overrepresented. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Sadly, true. Coming, coming back to that idea of scale-free schools that I mentioned in the beginning, interesting to see what your perspective would be on it. So the proposition that was put forward was, why does the school have to be represented as a building? I think it has to be represented as a place, certainly, you know, certainly to have a, a headquarters of some sort. Um, but could a school be a distributed system? You know, there's vast number of community buildings in a in a um, in a community, the church halls, the leisure centres, who are occupied for vast periods, uh, unoccupied for vast periods during the week, um, could it start in that way? And could actually the relationship between these things that that kids walk from one place to another be part of that learning? Because I suspect a lot of what's happened in in recent years is that kids have stopped becoming streetwise. Now, is there an element of learning? And also the other thing is communities acting in that responsible manner to look after kids, look out for kids, you know, being that responsible, the eyes on the street. Could there be a model in there somewhere uh, that might be worthwhile exploring? Absolutely. I love that because I can see that as you're talking, I'm thinking, no, Ruth, don't write this idea down because I can see me in a staff meeting next week talking about it. Because this whole thing we've got about it takes a village. We've got a building. That's fine. Yeah. But my whole thing is that that corporate down the road has got a gorgeous, shiny building and they don't use it all the time. Why could we not be doing our business studies lessons in there? You know, why could, why could we not be using that building? Why could we not be using there's a, the, a big sports centre in Mossside? Why are we doing PE in my place? Like, like, like that idea of actually using the community okay, yeah. so that the community are involved in these young people's lives, for, to me, feels almost obvious. And the only thing that stops that kind of thing happening is safeguarding. That's it, yeah. Um, and so that fear, again, of what the community holds and who's out there in the community. And I think we forget that that those those challenges or fears that are out in the community are there as soon as your school gates close anyway. So actually working alongside the community, teaching people to navigate, teaching young people to where safety is and where safety isn't. And also bringing teachers out of schools is a good thing. I remember when I had been teaching seven years and I said I was leaving 
a lot of my teacher friends were completely aghast, like, what will you do out there? You know, I was like, well, you know, the idea that I didn't have transferable skills would be useful out there in the community. And I think as much as we can get teachers out there as well, Absolutely. that would be a really helpful thing. Um, because I think if you lock people into a space where a curriculum hasn't changed for over 200 years, basically, like you you, you don't get that innovation. They're not talking to, to people who are um, social leaders or they're not talking to community workers. They're just doing what they know and doing that over and over again with it never changing. And that's not healthy, I don't feel. And also the, the question of tapping into the assets in your community. You know, I, I think going back to that story I wrote, there was a, an example of Mr. Patel, the chemist. Now he studied chemistry, but he wasn't doing chemistry. He was putting pills in bottles. That's what he was doing. So he had a skill. Why couldn't he become the chemistry teacher? You know, why couldn't, why couldn't kids go and see him and see what it was like in the workplace, what he did? You know, things like that. How can you, how can you make education this, this complete experience where you're actually mirroring community? You're, actually, you, you're looking at the strengths of community. And at the same time, you're building community because a lot of those people who've been told, don't whatever you do, talk to those kids, don't pull them up. You know, you might get stabbed or you might, you know, so people are, people are also operating in this kind of world of fear against kids. So how do you break that cycle? How do you break that cycle? And I, I just can't help but think that some way that starts changing the mold that you, as I said, you scan in your kid in the morning to school and you scan them out in the afternoon is probably the example. But certainly in America, that's what's almost what's becoming. It's almost becoming, you know, that kids are going through metal detectors to go into high schools and coming out in the afternoon. Um, so this idea of, of seeing, seeing something as a place where you deposit your kids into rather seeing education as a, as a subsystem or system that exists within that community. And it's going to be far richer because of that. And out of that, unpredictable things will start emerging. Out of that unpredictability, the great musician might come out or the great artist might come out or um, uh, the great narrator. And, um, and so you're celebrating them at the same time. So it'd be interesting to see if, you, if you're really looking to flatten that graph, flatten that horizontality, is how you, how you see the, the small, the mass of small that I'm talking about in here. How do you see that mass of small is being distributed across the whole area? I definitely go to a school. I, mean, no. I think I'd go to it. I just love the idea that you could kind of walk walk to PE and then walk up to the the old school hall where someone might happen to be doing um, you know literature or something like that. So you're changing the whole network in in such a way. I, I would love to go to school like that. How, what, have you reached out to like these big shiny business places to do your business studies? And what are they Honestly, Like, literally, I'm having this conversation with you guys, but you can see that half of me now, an eye is turned, <laughs> and I'm thinking about how I'm going to implement some of this. This is a dangerous conversation for me. Yeah, um, but, but one of the things that I say to the, the business community a lot of time is because, you know, they've got a very – we're very tick, tick, tick for a lot of businesses because, you know, like working-class kids, yeah, and predominantly black kids, um, north, you know, the north is cool now. Like, pe people want to be aligned with us. But sometimes the business world doesn't have very innovative ideas in terms of how they might work with you as a charity. They want to, they want to, but they're not sure how to. So that idea sometimes of them coming in and doing a day with our young people, that's great. But it's like, like, how can we take that deeper? How can we use your resource? That's not just about you giving me some money once a year, but you, you actually really caring and getting to know our young people. And if we've got time, I'll tell you the best example of this was years ago, I ran a charity called Reclaim and we had, um, it was about the working class youth leadership. And we had a young girl who had been involved in um, 
a lot of the grooming and sexual exploitation kind of scandals. It was a terrible situation. And she came back and said that she wanted, she came out of that situation. She said she wanted to lead change and she wanted to find other girls and they wanted to train teachers and social workers and police to better spot sexual exploitation of vulnerable young girls. And she was now like 17 and she was like, I'm not going to be a victim anymore. It was amazing, like totally amazing. And she came and asked me and the organisation for help. And the thing that we did is we, at the time we were being um, supported by, I think it was KPMG, that had given us, I don't know, £10,000 towards our charity. We went back to them and said, we've got this young girl, how can you help? And you could see terror <laughs> at first in terms of how could we possibly help? Was what they, <laughs> yeah, what they decided to do, they worked with her alongside her. And what they decided to do was to do an audit of um, the patterns of sexual exploitation in the area so she could... So she could know with knowledge where the hotspots were, where the offenders were, and she had a file of evidence that she could take to police and social workers. And what that was, was they were doing what they do anyway, right? They were auditors. They knew how to do that. Yeah. She knew her world. And combining those two things made the, her work so powerful. And I was, and, and you could see that they, they would never have thought of doing that work. But what they gave her was 10 times if they'd just given her a check. And so what I'm trying to say to businesses constantly is whatever you're brilliant at, do that for us. Do that with our young people. Give them a glimmer. Give them a shot of what you've got. That's what will help them the most. Well, let's let's talk offline about that. I might have some suggestions of uh, um, companies that might be able to collaborate with you. So I'm very okay. conscious of time here. This is a woman we could talk to for a long time. Proverbial long cows time. Um, uh, come home. Yeah, I actually love. I just love talking about education. I mean, it's just you, a, do, you really are excited. About yeah, it. I just, I just think that it's such a broken. You say it's such a broken system. It's just because you know you see bright young kids and you think, well, have we broken them? You know, why have we done this to them? So um, I, I really applaud what you're doing. It's, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, uh, um, honestly, you, Ruth. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us. I realise how busy um, you are with your work and with your. Like genuinely, I'm a few podcasts in. I've really, really really enjoyed this so thank you for the conversation absolute pleasure and um uh, we hope many people will listen to you and all power to you ruth ibeg buna thank you so much thanks ruth